0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we look to the subtext of scripture and discover the underlying themes that are present in the text. Well, in the book of Leviticus, for nearly the first entire third of the book, if we examine the book according to length, we're presented with the instructions for sacrifice. And what is sacrifice? Sacrifice is much more than simply giving up something of value. That is the view of a toddler when he's asked to share things with his siblings. Sacrifice is an exercise in building and maintaining relationship with one that you love. Sacrifice contains within the scope of its expressions the way that we as dirty, filthy, unclean humans, that we can interact with our holy, awesome, and mighty God. The idea of sacrifice in many cultures contains within it a very real fear, terror even. In the ancient Near East cultures that surrounded Israel, they sacrificed in order to appease the anger of their gods, or alternatively, to appeal to the appetite of a god to get what they wanted. Now, sacrifice was how the gods were fed. Sacrifice was how plagues and famine were avoided. Sacrifice was an appeal for good crops, or children, or power, status, or even fortune. And throughout the many cultures of history that engaged in sacrifice, the people never knew what the gods expected. They simply gave of their precious things, and they hoped for the best. And when that didn't work, then they upped the ante, and they gave of things even more precious, up to the point of giving their own children to these gods, all in an attempt to reach and to influence a fickle god who they didn't know, and whose desires were a complete mystery. Well, when we turn to Leviticus, the undiscerning mind may only see this type of thing occurring. But, as we've proceeded through the sacrifice instructions in Leviticus, I pray that you have recognized a different truth. Sacrifices to Hashem are not about influencing His decisions or appealing to Him for anything. They're ways of communicating in a visceral way that means something to us as humans. And they are the way of keeping those lines of communication open in the case of an offense. But they are all meant to communicate something about our current state to the God of the universe. And what do they communicate? Well, let's go back through these. So first off is the Ola offering, the burnt or the ascending offering. In this sacrifice, the entire animal is burnt on the altar, everything but the skin. Something else happens to the skin, as we're going to read in today's Parsha. This sacrifice demonstrated an attitude of fear. Not terror, but a respectful fear of a God who can, at any moment, end your existence and be totally justified in doing so. It's a recognition of the awesomeness of God and the simple fact that He owns everything already. How is this different than the pagan sacrifices that were based on fear of the unknown in the world? Well, the Ola sacrifice is not an attempt to gain anything from God, although there are a few examples in scripture of people using the Ola in this way. Uh, Jephthah comes to mind. But when we examine the way the sacrifice is described in Leviticus and elsewhere, the Ola was not intended to influence God in any way. It was simply a recognition of his divine nature. Next is the mincha. The mincha is a bloodless offering of grains and herbs. In the ancient Near East, this type of offering would have been given in an attempt to feed the god that it was being offered to. In their minds, the gods needed to eat as well, so it was the job of humanity to feed them so that they could then focus on their duties as a god. But when we turn to Leviticus 2, we found that this is not the case with this type of sacrifice at all. Rather, the mincha was a way of recognizing our standing in relationship to God. It was a gift such as one given to an intimate partner or a friend, or alternatively it was a tribute such as was given to a king or one in authority. Not as food, but because giving gifts is a way of expressing love. Tribute is a way of expressing loyalty or appreciation to a king for all that he has done on your behalf, even if you never see it. The third type of sacrifice is the shlamim, or the peace, fellowship, or friendship offering. This sacrifice is one that takes on the idea of sharing a meal. Again, the idea here is not that God needs food, but a recognition that humans build relationships by eating food with those around us. Food connects us in a very fundamental way, and our Creator, He he knows this. And so He tells us of a way that we can connect and fellowship with Him in a very real way. And the meals that we share with God as people can take on several ideals. There's the meal of Thanksgiving. This is a meal shared with those around us, and it gives us the opportunity to relate to them something that has occurred that we are grateful for. Then there is a vow meal. This is a meal that's shared with those around us that gives us the opportunity to relate a promise that we have made and to build up around us accountability partners that can keep us true when we begin, as humans do, to act contrary to our promises. And then there is the meal that is eaten with those around us simply because we want to be in their company. It's a voluntary feast in the truest sense of the word, not for any particular purpose, just because we want to be with those around us and to build community. Then finally, we read the sacrifices of offense. Now, these sacrifices are steeped in two ideas. The first, the chata'at, or sin sacrifice, it bears in it a simple recognition. We are creatures that are steeped in sin. Sin is part of our nature, but God is so vastly different than we are, That our nature is an offense to his presence. And because relationship with us is so important to him, he created a way for the filth that clings to us to be covered. And at the same time, the filth that we leave behind is washed away so that he can continue to live in our presence. This sacrifices our own recognition that humanity is not worthy of the attention of such a holy God. The second offense sacrifice is the one that is given when an actual offense is committed. This is the guilt or the asham sacrifice. When love, trust, justice, peace, and mercy have been betrayed, when harm has been perpetuated upon another, when relationship has been actively injured due to poor decisions and harmful actions on our part, relationship must be mended. And so instructions are given for a sacrifice that is to take place when this occurs. And the sacrifice not only cleans up the uncleanness that has resulted from the offense, but it also acts as a form of restitution to God, a repayment to Him for the offense that has occurred. And this this is the sacrificial system in a nutshell. Unlike the pagan institution of sacrifice, the Hebrew institution of sacrifice is all about relationship relationship with God, and in some cases, such as the shlamim and the guilt sacrifices, relationship with each other. Now, this week we will wrap up our discussion of sacrifice, at least for now. There are a few instances in the book of Numbers where we will return to the subject for a time, but for Leviticus the discussion on sacrifice ends this week. And as we go through this week's text, we will discover that much of what is written here has already been covered in our previous discussions on sacrifice. But this week there is another topic that is introduced through this topic of sacrifice that is vitally important for us to know. So let's turn to Leviticus 6 and begin reading in verse 8. Leviticus 6, 8-7, 38 And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Command Aharon and his sons, saying, This is the Torah of the ascending offering. This is the ascending offering, because it is burned on the altar all night until morning, and the fire of the altar is kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garments, and put his linen trousers on his body, and shall take up the ashes of the ascending offering, which the fire has consumed on the altar, and shall put them beside the altar. And he shall take off his garments, and put on other garments, and shall bring the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. And the fire on the altar is kept burning on it, it is not put out." And the priests shall burn wood on it every morning, and arrange the ascending offering on it, and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Fire is continually kept burning on the altar. It is not put out and this is the torah of the grain offering the sons of aaron shall bring it near before hashem in front of the altar and shall take from it with his hand from the fine flour of the grain offering and from its oil and all the frankincense which is on the grain offering and shall burn it on the altar for a sweet fragrance it is a remembrance portion to hashem then aaron and his sons eat the rest of it it is eaten with unleavened bread in the set apart place and they eat it in the courtyard of the tent of appointment it is not baked with leaven I have given it to them as their portion of my offerings made by fire it is most set apart like the sin offering and the guilt offering all the males among the children of Aaron eat it a law forever in your generations concerning the offerings made by fire to hashem all that touches them is to be set apart and hashem spoke to moshe saying this is the offering of Aaron and his sons which they bring near to hashem beginning on the day when he is anointed One-tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a daily grain offering, half of it in the morning and half of it in the evening. It is made on a griddle with oil. Bring it in mixed. Bring the baked portions of the grain offering near, a sweet fragrance to Hashem. And the anointed priest from among his sons who is in his place prepares it, a law forever to Hashem. All of it has to be burned. And every grain offering for the priest is completely burned. It is not eaten." HaShem spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the Torah of the sin offering. In the place where the ascending offering is slain, the sin offering is slain before HaShem. It is most set apart. The priest who is making atonement eats it in the set-apart place it is eaten, in the courtyard of the tent of appointment. All that touches its flesh is to be set apart, and when its blood is sprinkled on any garment, you wash that on which it was sprinkled in a set-apart place. But the earthen vessel in which it is cooked is to be broken, and if it is cooked in a bronze pot then it is to be scoured and rinsed in water. Every male among the priests eats it. It is most set apart. And no sin offering from which any of the blood is brought into the tent of appointment to make atonement in the set-apart place is eaten. It is burned with fire. And this is the Torah of the guilt offering. It is most set apart. The guilt offering is slain in the place where they slay the ascending offering, and its blood is sprinkled on the altar all around. Then he brings from it all its fat, the fat tail and the fat that covers the entrails, and the two kidneys and the fat that is on them by the loins, and the appendage on the liver which he removes with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn them on the altar as an offering made by fire to Hashem. It is a guilt offering. Every male among the priests eat it it is eaten in the set-apart place it is most set-apart the guilt offering is like the sin offering there is one torah for them both the priest who makes atonement with it it is his and the priest who brings anyone's ascending offering the skin of the ascending offering which he has brought is the priest's it is his and every grain offering that is baked in the oven and all that is prepared in the stew pot or on the griddle it is the priest's who brings it it is his And every grain offering mixed with oil, or dry, it is all for the sons of Aaron, for all alike. And this is the Torah of the sacrifice of peace offerings, which is brought to Hashem. If he brings it for a thanksgiving, then he shall bring it with the sacrifice of thanksgiving, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened thin cakes anointed with oil, or cakes of finely blended flour mixed with oil. Besides the cakes, he brings as his offering leavened bread, together with the sacrifice of thanksgiving, of his peace offerings. And from it he shall bring one cake from each offering as a contribution to Hashem, to the priest who sprinkles the blood of the peace offerings, it is his. As for the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving, it is eaten the same day it is offered. He does not leave any of it until morning. And if the sacrifice he brings is a vow or a voluntary offering, it is eaten the same day that he brings it. His sacrifice and what is left of it is eaten the next day. But whatever is left of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day is burned with fire. However, if any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings is eaten at all on the third day, it is not accepted. It is not reckoned to him who brings it. It is unclean to him, and the being who eats of it bears his crookedness. And the flesh that touches that which is unclean is not eaten. It is burned with fire, and as for the clean flesh, all who are clean eat of it. But the being who eats the flesh of the sacrifice of peace offerings that belongs to Hashem, while he is unclean, that being shall be cut off from his people. And when a being who touches that which is unclean, of the uncleanness of man, or of the uncleanness of beast, or of any unclean abomination, and shall eat the flesh of the sacrifice of peace offerings that belongs to Hashem, that being shall be cut off from his people. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, Do not eat any of the fat of bull or sheep or goat, and the fat of a dead body, and the fat of what is torn, is used for any purpose, but you do not eat it at all. For whoever eats the fat of the beast of which men bring as an offering made by fire to Hashem, even the being who eats it shall be cut off from his people. And do not eat any blood in any of your dwellings, of bird or of beast, any being who eats any blood even that being shall be cut off from his people. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, He who brings his sacrifice of peace offerings to Hashem brings his offerings to Hashem for the sacrifice of his peace offering. With his own hands he brings the offering made by fire to Hashem. He brings the fat with the breast to be waved as a wave offering before Hashem. And the priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall be Aaron and his son's and the right thigh you give to the priest as a contribution from the sacrifice of your peace offerings. He among the sons of Aaron, who brings the blood of the peace offerings and the fat, the right thigh, is his for a portion. For the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the contribution I have taken from the children of Israel, for the sacrifice of the peace offerings and I have given them to Aaron the priest and to his sons as a law forever from the children of Israel. This is the anointed portion for Aaron and the anointed portion for his sons from the offerings made by fire to Hashem on the day when Moshe presented them to serve as priests to Hashem, which Hashem commanded to be given to them by the children of Israel on the day that he anointed them, a law forever throughout their generations. This is the Torah of the ascending offering, of the grain offering, and of the sin offering, and of the guilt offering, and of the ordinations, and of the sacrifice of peace offerings, which Adonai commanded Moshe on Mount Sinai, on the day when he commanded the children of Israel to bring their offerings to Hashem in the wilderness of Sinai. Throughout the last few lessons of Leviticus, we have gone through each of these sacrifices, as we just went through them all as part of the introduction to this lesson. Well, that's what we read In the text of these final chapters that cover sacrifice. Each sacrifice is addressed once again. But this time, rather than instructions being given for what kind of offering to bring and how the offering is supposed to be presented, this time there are other things that are being discussed. For the majority of this Parsha, the topic is who gets what part of each sacrifice. Now We've covered this before as we've gone through each of the sacrifices individually. Let's cover this ground one more time since that is a large part of this week's text, but we're not going to spend a whole lot of time here. For the Ola sacrifice, the entire animal was offered on the altar, and so as this Parsha opens, the topic of who gets to eat of the offering is not even touched. Rather, this topic is how to deal with the ashes, which we're going to return to in a moment as this particular description opens up a much larger topic that I was talking about earlier and that we're going to return to in just a little bit. It's not until chapter 7 that we learn that the priest that offers the olah gets to keep the skin of the sacrificed animal. The rest of the animal is burnt up, hence the name of the offering, which is based on the word Allah, which means to ascend or to go up. Now, With the mincha, we discover in 614 that only a handful of the offering is burned on the altar. The remainder of the offering was to be eaten by the priests, with one exception. In 6.19-23, we discover that if the mincha is part of the ordination ceremony, which we're going to read of next week, the entirety of the offering is burned on the altar. And then we're told that if a priest brings a grain offering, it's all burned. Every other grain offering, however, offered by anyone else, is primarily eaten by the priests. With the sin offering, the priests get the entire animal to eat except for the suet and the kidneys which were burned on the altar now it says don't eat any fat the type of fat there is a fat that we know as suet now again there are a few exceptions to this Any time that an animal's blood was brought into the tabernacle to make atonement within the holy place the rest of the animal was to be burned outside the camp in a clean place This means that the sin sacrifice for a priest or one made on behalf of the entire congregation was not eaten by anyone. Only a sin sacrifice that was made by a ruler or a layman could be eaten by the priests. The same goes for the guilt offering, but since the blood of the guilt offering was never brought into the holy place, every guilt offering was eaten by the priests. And finally in chapter 7, beginning in verse 10, we read of the Shlamim offering. Back in chapter 3, we read that the peace offering consisted of an animal, but in this chapter we discovered that there is more to the Shlemim offering than just the animal. There are cakes and bread that are to be brought along with the animal. And in 713, we read that besides the unleavened cakes, the offering was to also include leavened bread. Now, back in chapter 2, we read that no offering was to include leavened bread, so this might seem like a contradiction. But we discovered that in chapter two, that this limitation was only on grain offerings that were burnt by fire on the altar. This particular loaf was not burned on the altar. It was part of the celebratory meal, and so it was part of the offering. It, it just wasn't burnt. Anyway, in the Shlimeim offering, the suet was once again burned on the altar. The priests received the breast and the right thigh as their portion. The worshiper that brought the animal then got to eat the rest but there was a time limit on how long he had before it had to be eaten. And that time limit, it changed based on what kind of the subset of shlamim was being expressed. So while the easy topic to spot in the text here is who gets what and when, I mentioned earlier that there is another topic that's being addressed alongside this topic. So let's return to the beginning of the Parsha and discuss the theme that runs alongside the offering menu in every case. Now, at the beginning of the Parsha, whether that's verse 1 or verse 8, depending on your translation, we read what the priest is to do with the ashes from the olah sacrifice. As we just read, the olah was the only sacrifice where more than the suet and kidneys were burnt on the altar. Every other sacrifice the animal was eaten or burned outside the camp. And so it makes sense that this is the sacrifice that has no instructions for eating but rather has instructions for what to do with the ashes that would accumulate on the altar. So as we read, we discover that a priest is to come to the altar in his linen garments that are his vestments and clean the ashes from the altar and pile them next to the altar. The priest was then to change into his street clothes before carrying the ashes outside of the camp to the clean place where the sin offerings that were to be burnt outside the camp was then immolated. So the question that comes up is, why does he have to change his clothes? What's the deal with this? Why does he wear one thing while cleaning the altar out, but then an entirely different thing while disposing of the ashes? For now, it doesn't make a lot of sense, so let's continue on and see if we can discern other things of this nature also occurring in the text. The next thing that we read of is that the fire on the altar is to be kept burning continually and should not be allowed to go out. Now, this is an interesting aside, and as we will discover soon, this is no ordinary fire that's burning on the altar. And so I'm not going to dwell on this today. Next, we read of the mincha offering, and for the most part, nothing seems odd until we get to the very end of the sacrifice in verse 18. Anyone that touches the sacrifice is to be yikdash. They are to have been granted holiness. Or is it that they will take on and become holy. Now, the Hebrew here does not seem extremely clear on this distinction, and perhaps that's because there's not much of a distinction as we're going to talk about in a later lesson. The following instruction on the mincha for the ordination offering is pretty straightforward, but when we get to verse 27 in the sin sacrifice, we read that all that touch of the flesh of the sacrifice is to be holy. Again, the Hebrew word is yikdash, which means, he will be holy. And when a garment is stained with the blood, it is to be washed in a holy place. And the pot in which it is cooked is to be broken if it is pottery, and is to be scoured clean if it is bronze or brass. Then in chapter 7, we read of the guilt sacrifice at the beginning of the chapter, and near the end of the section, once again, in verse 6, the meat of the sacrifice is to be eaten, in a holy place, because the meat of the sacrifice is holy. Now, What's going on here? Each of the sections in this first part of this Parsha has some odd little quip as being made about holiness. Now, when seen separately, they don't make a whole lot of sense. But when we add all of these together, we find a fuller picture come together of something that we should be aware of. The holiness of God is transferable to items, As well as to people. And this holiness, it comes about in several ways that we will see throughout Scripture. In just a few chapters, we're going to read of an event where the holiness of God is transgressed by two young men who were to be priests. But these two men, they entered into the holy place improperly, and they introduced something into the space which was not supposed to be there. And as a result, these two men, they transgressed the holiness of God, and they were consumed with fire. In number 16, we will read of a similar event that occurs when 250 firstborn of Israel decide that they want to be priests rather than Aaron and his sons. And in their rebellion, they offer incense to God. Now these men, they don't even enter the tabernacle. They simply offer incense outside of the tabernacle, and the same thing occurs. They are consumed with fire. Just after this, listen to what is said about the incense holders that the rebels used. Numbers 16, 35-38 And a fire came out from Hashem and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Say to Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, to pick up the fireholders out of the blaze, for they are holy, and scatter the fire some distance away. The fireholders of these men who sinned against their own lives. Let them be made into beaten plates as a covering for the altar, because they brought them before Hashem. Therefore, they are holy. And let them become a sign to the children of Israel. The men were consumed. The incense holders became holy. Now, it's not specifically stated as such, but I believe that what happened to the incense holders is the same thing that happened to the people. And what is it that happened? to an earthen vessel that is not holy, but which touches the holy? It is to be destroyed. I believe that this is what we're reading of in these instances. They went into holy space, or participated in a holy act, and they had not been granted the measure of holiness needed to survive the holiness that surrounded them. And so, just as the earthen vessel, they took on holiness, and they needed to be destroyed. In a way, they got their wish. They were gifted holiness. They simply could not contain it. Now there is another time that a person who was not authorized to be in the holy place and burning incense did so. And in this other case, the proximity to holiness affects the person in a completely different way. We read of this in Second Chronicles 26, verses 16-22. through 22. But when he became strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction, for he trespassed against Hashem his Elohim by entering into the temple of Hashem to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now, the one being spoken of here is Uzziah, the king of Israel. And Azariahu the priest went in after him, and with him were eighty priests of Hashem, who were brave men. And they stood up against King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to Hashem, but for the priests and the sons of Aaron who are set apart to burn incense. Get out of the holy place, for you have trespassed, and there is no honor to you from Hashem, Elohim. And Uzziah was wroth, and he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was wroth with his priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of Hashem, besides the incense altar. And Azariah the chief priests and all the priests looked at him, and saw that he was leprous on his forehead, and they hurried him from there. And he also hurried to get out, because Hashem had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper until the day of his death, and dwelt in a separate house, because he was a leper. For he was cut off from the house of Hashem, and Yotam his son was over the king's house, ruling the people of the land, and the rest of the acts of Uzziah, from the first to the last, the prophet Yeshiyahu, Isaiah, the son of Amoz, wrote. Now Uzziah, in his joy at the power that he had been able to amass, he became prideful, and he thought that because God had blessed him, that he could take upon himself a role which was not his to take. He, too, he entered into the holy place in order to offer incense before Hashem. The result this time was like the last, but slightly different. The king was destroyed, but he was not burnt with the fire of God. Rather, the king was put into a state of living death, a state of uncleanness that prevented him from ever being a part of the nation that he ruled over again and he was never allowed into the temple complex again. The point is that holiness is transferable, and there are levels of holiness that exist in the congregation of Hashem. There is the one who is so holy that he is allowed to enter into the throne room once a year. Not to offer advice or worship, or even because he deserved to be there. He was there to clean the articles from the uncleanness of the people. His job on that one day was to act as a janitor of sorts. And for this purpose, God withheld his hand from striking the high priest and he would allow him to come near. But this man in his holiness, he had a greater duty and responsibility because he was the one who came near to God, regardless of the purpose of coming near. The high priest was the only one who had his head fully anointed with the holy oil. And the level of holiness that came from this was extraordinary, and it bore with it some great expectations and responsibilities, even when he was on his own time. The priest could not unbind his head. Now there's some disagreement as to what this means, but we're going to discuss those possibilities when we get there in Leviticus 21. The high priest could not tear his garments. He could not be close to a dead body at all, not even his own parents. And he could only marry a virgin. He could not marry a widow, a divorcee, or a prostitute. The level of holiness that was expected of him exceeded the level that was expected of even the normal priests. Now, a priest was anointed with the holy oil, but rather than having it poured over his head in copious amounts, a normal priest only had the oil mixed with the blood of a sacrifice sprinkled on him, as we'll read next week. But even this carried with it a level of responsibility that was not to be defiled. A priest was not allowed to mourn the dead unless the dead person was a close relative, a member of his own family. Even then, a priest was not allowed to mourn in the traditional way of cutting his hair or his beard. A priest could not marry a divorcee or a harlot, but the implication is that he could marry a widow, and the daughter of a priest who became a harlot was to be burned. These levels of holiness are those that are above and beyond what was expected of a layman. Now, the layman has a level of holiness expected of him, but the list is quite long, and so we're not going to go through it today. But we're going to cover it when we get to Leviticus chapters 18 through 20. We're going to read about the holiness that is expected of the layman. And if you go and you read it now, you're going to find repeated twice in this section the phrase, you will be holy because I am holy. Now we're going to dig into this when we get to these chapters, but even the layman is gifted with holiness because of their proximity to Hashem. And these levels of holiness, they reveal a hierarchy of holiness before God. Those who come closest were bestowed with the greatest measure. Those who only came occasionally had fewer expectations. And those who don't come near at all? Well, then, nothing is expected of them in regards to holiness. And all of this was revealed in the instructions for the sacrifices that only the priests interacted with, the ones covered up to this point. Now, as we continue to read on the Parsha in chapter 7, we see the text shift to the peace offering. And we're going to notice something. The Shlamim offering is the one offering that the layman ate of and interacted with. And in this text, we see something new highlighted in verses 19 through 21. And this is uncleanness. Holiness was not as big a deal for the layman, but uncleanness was a huge deal when coming close to God. And if we pay close attention to these verses, we discover that the people did not have to worry so much about holiness because they were not allowed into the truly holy areas of the tabernacle compound. The layman should never have come into contact with the concentrated holiness, so the layman does not have as much to worry about in this regard. But the uncleanness that clings to a human is still something that must be dealt with. And if we truly consider these two statuses that can accompany a person— we find that they fall on two different scales. One scale with holy on one end and defilement on the other. The other scale with clean on one end and unclean on the other. Both scales are things that a person who wished to come near to God needed to be concerned about. You see, a priest with the level of holiness that was bestowed on him was limited in the things that he could allow to defile him. Certain dead bodies he could become defiled for. A widow, he could become defiled for. But the dead body of a neighbor or a friend? No, he could not become defiled for that. It's the same with the high priest. But even a priest or a high priest would become unclean from time to time without being defiled. Because uncleanness is so much a part of our experience on earth. Touching a dead bug, intimacy with a spouse, and things of that nature, they all bring with them uncleanness. When a priest became unclean, they handled it in the same way as everyone else. Usually, it was simply a wash and a wait, and their uncleanness was taken care of on the low end. At the high end, it took up to seven days of cleansing and the ritual of the red heifer, if they had attended a family member who had died. But defilement, it would either disqualify the priest or it would require a sacrifice of some sort to return them to a state of holiness that would then again be allowed before God. So why does any of this matter? Why do statuses such as holiness and uncleanness mean anything to us anymore? Well, if we turn to the Newer Testament, we'll find that the word holy is used all throughout it, but this word is usually as descriptive of things. Phrases such as lifting holy hands, entering the holy places, greeting each other with a holy kiss, angels declaring holy, 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 and the ever-present Holy Spirit. Now these things, they don't tell us how to be holy, they simply refer to things that are holy. But if we pay attention, we will find several times that these topics are touched on. Peter appeals to us that we should be holy in our conduct, in second peter one fourteen through sixteen says as obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Now we can only assume that Peter is referring to the holiness that is found in Leviticus seventeen through twenty the holiness code of action as recorded for us there. But Peter doesn't go any further in his appeal to be holy in conduct or expound on just what that means. Now Paul in Ephesians, he makes a similar appeal without immediately expounding on how to accomplish holiness. Ephesians 1, 3-4 Blessed be the Elohim and Father of our Master Yeshua the Messiah, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, in Messiah even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Okay, we should be holy and blameless before him. Now if we turn to Second Timothy chapter two, we find Paul expounding on holiness in the following way. This is the only time in the New Testament that I found a place that took the word holy and then developed what it meant. Second Timothy two, Verses twenty through twenty two. But in a large house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some unto value and some unto no value. If then any one cleanses himself from these matters he shall be a vessel unto value, having been set apart, made holy, of good use to the master, having been prepared for every good work. And flee from the lusts of youth, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, with those calling on the Master out of a clean heart. Righteousness, faith, love, and peace are things that are connected to holiness in the New Testament. Now likewise, the word defiled, when we read of it, is also dealing with the status of holiness. But defiled is only seen three times in the New Testament. Twice, it is in two books that relate the same story. Matthew 15, 18-20 But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and defiles the person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Here we get a list of things that will defile a person or revoke the holiness that's in them evil thoughts murder adultery sexual immorality theft false witness and slander now the second time that we read of this is in the book of mark and it's the same story as recounted and then we read it once in the book of titus but it doesn't add anything to the conversation now alongside holiness is the status of uncleanness This topic is much larger in the New Testament as every time that we read of being purified or clean, we can understand them as being connected to the status of uncleanness. As for uncleanness itself, we read of it in an even more limited number of places in the New Testament than we read of holiness. For the majority of the places that we find it associated with unclean spirits, but there are few times in other places where the topic is addressed, and for the most part, we find uncleanness situated in the lists of the works of the flesh. Second Corinthians twelve, twenty through twenty one. For I fear lest when I come I do not find you as such as I wish, and I be found by you such as you do not wish, lest there be strife, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, slander, gossips, puffings up, unrest, and lest when I come again, my Elohim shall humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness and whoring and indecency which they have practiced. Then in Ephesians 4:17 through 20 we read, So this I say and witness in the Master, that you should no longer walk as the nations walk, in the futility of their minds, having been darkened in their understanding, having been estranged from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, who having become callous have given themselves up to indecency, to work all uncleanness with greediness, but you have not so learned in Messiah. And then finally in Galatians four nineteen through twenty one, and the works of the flesh are well known, which are these: adultery, whoring, uncleanness indecency, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, quarrels, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, murders, drunkenness, wild parties, and the like, of which I forewarn you even as I also said before, that those who practice such as these shall not inherit the kingdom of God. In each of these and several other places Uncleanness is equated with all sorts of sin and the works of the flesh. And as we talked about two weeks ago, it is uncleanness that is most closely associated with sin in Leviticus. Whether it is the sin that we have as part of our nature, or the sin that we all engage in from time to time, we were once unclean, but we have been purified in the blood of Yeshua. Now, frankly, for those of us who have been clean, the status of uncleanness, it it really no longer affects us. We are clean. We have been cleansed. Sin is no longer our nature. And yet, even today, we are to still be aware of uncleanness. 2 Corinthians 6, 16-18 says, And what union has the dwelling place of God with idols? For you are a dwelling place of the living God, as God has said, I shall dwell in them and walk among them, and I shall be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says Adonai, holy, separate, and do not touch what is unclean, and I shall receive you. And I shall be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says Hashem, the Almighty. This passage is a direct quote from Isaiah. Isaiah 52, 9-12 Break forth into joy and sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For Hashem shall comfort His people, and He shall redeem Jerusalem. Hashem shall lay bare His holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Turn aside, turn aside, come out from there, touch not the unclean, come out of her midst and be clean, you who bear the vessels of Hashem. Come out from among them, and touch not the unclean. Be clean. Why? Because we are the temples of God. We are his dwelling place. And what union does the temple of God have with idols and sin and uncleanness? None at all. And that's what we're reading here in Leviticus. Now, one question that I had while reading this is, Is this talking about unclean items or unclean people? The text in this passage is is not really clear. If we turn to Leviticus, it can be both. But if we take Yeshua's example, we see that he touched unclean people many times, and it was always for the purpose of cleansing them, for bringing them back to him. So why does this matter at all, at this point of history, when we have been cleansed from uncleanness by the blood of Yeshua? Because, as we're going to find out soon enough, uncleanness is always connected to death. And it is sin and death that separate us from God. Death is such an affront to God that we read this of the new creation in Revelation 21. Revelation 21, verse 27, And there shall by no means enter into whatever is unclean. Neither anyone doing abomination and falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Nothing and no one who is unclean will enter into the new creation. And as we have learned, uncleanness is the product of sin, and as we are going to discover, it is always connected to death. God will not allow uncleanness into his presence. Holiness and uncleanness are not designations that have passed away with the temple. They still have some bearing in our world, and it's vitally important that we understand them and how they might look different to us today than they did for ancient Israel. And that's going to be the challenge for a large part of what remains of the book of Leviticus. Because Leviticus does not stop here on its discussion of these topics. It's going to go into great detail to help us understand these designations and how they can and do affect us. And if we are being built into a priesthood, as we have touched on before, then we will one day be tasked with teaching others what it means to be clean and unclean. We find this verse in just a few chapters, and it is specifically referencing the priesthood. Leviticus 10, 9-10 Do not drink wine or strong drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tent of appointment, lest you die. A law forever throughout your generation, so as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane, and between the clean and the unclean. And we find this verse when speaking of the temple and its service that's found at the end of Ezekiel, the temple that's not ever graced this earth up to this point. If this temple is even a physical temple and isn't merely symbolic, but in Ezekiel forty four twenty three, among many other places in these chapters, says, "And they are to teach my people the difference between the holy and the profane, and to make them know what is unclean and clean." If Ezekiel is literal, then we may find ourselves as part of this priesthood that is to teach these designations to the nations. If Ezekiel is metaphor then we definitely will find ourselves as part of this priesthood because we are the priests of this age. The priests of the past had the duty of teaching these instructions to Israel, as will the priests of the future. And even now, in this time between, with us being built up as priests, we must learn these distinctions and begin to apply them to our own lives. In Leviticus, these topics are explained with lists of things that are unclean. And lists are how ancient people taught wisdom to each other. But for us, we learn in different ways. As Yeshua taught us, understanding scripture is not about rote obedience to a list, but it is found in discerning the attitude of the heart that lies under the list. If we can learn these underlying principles, we won't need a list. We can live our lives according to these base principles, and the lists will then be covered. And so will all of our thoughts and actions. For God seeks to be in relationship with us. And relationship it's not possible when we are unclean. And worship is not possible if we are defiled. We have been cleansed in the blood of Yeshua. But we still must know these distinctions. They have not passed away. Understanding these will help us to know better what is expected of us than any list that Moses, or even Paul, wrote. Knowing these topics and what undergirds them, we won't need a list. We will find ourselves naturally avoiding all matter of defilement and uncleanness. And living in this way will allow our lines of communication to stay open, and it keeps our relationship with the Most High pure. Because sacrifice? Sacrifice is all about relationship. It's about being near the God of all creation. It's about creating clean spaces that God can occupy on this earth without destroying everything in the process. And So my question to you is, what are you sacrificing in order to keep your relationship with God alive and well? For we're expected to give something. Money, Praise, honor, respect, gratitude, time, your very life. It's very easy to get caught up in what you're owed, what God is holding back from you, and in doing so to lose sight of what you owe to the God of all creation. For we all owe Him. And recognizing that as part of our worship is a step that will keep us on the path of life. So let's practice sacrifice as we Deir chai, as we seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deir Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.